Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to be reading the passage of Scripture that I will be preaching the sermon from immediately afterward. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. We're going to read through the completion of Paul's unit of thought, which is down into chapter 10 and verse 4. Please stand in honor the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This passage is about faith. So this sermon is about faith. It's about faith alone that leads to salvation through Jesus Christ alone. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 4, is really the bookend to the opposite side, which is Romans chapter 9 and verse 1 that we looked at many weeks ago. And Paul's desire here is for the Jews to be saved. But that's interesting because Paul, as you know, is an evangelist primarily to the Gentiles. But here we see, one more time, that the Jews and the Gentiles are both saved the same way. There has always been and always will be one people of God. There has been and always will be one way to be reconciled to God. There was not an Old Testament way of getting saved and a New Testament way of getting saved. There was not a pathway for the Jews through the Old Covenant and a pathway for the Gentiles through a New Covenant. There was and always has been and always will be one way and that is through faith. Faith is a gift. It's a gift that was given to the Jews. It was a gift that is given to the Gentiles. And the very fact that the gift was given to the Gentiles is what makes it so difficult for the Jews. You see, it offended them that they were not able to contribute anything to their salvation. The Jews said, how can this possibly be true if there's nothing I do to contribute to my salvation? How could it be by faith alone? And certainly, how could it be by faith alone if you're going to allow these Gentiles to come in as well. 
You see, pride despises charity. Pride despises help. Pride resists grace, and grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is really hard for a legalist to accept. But it's also the gospel, and it's also the focus of our attention this morning. In his excellent little book, Reformation, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, Carl Truman says this about the importance of an orderly gathering when believers come together on the Lord's Day. He says, quote, I am no fan of Anglican liturgy or of formal liturgy in general for that matter, but two things I will say in its favor. In a liturgical setting, people rarely, if ever, speak nonsense in a church service. And in most liturgies of which I am aware, the focus is always ultimately upon God and his deeds, not human beings and their needs. And that is good, sound, biblical emphasis. Elsewhere in the book, he says this, quote, what is needed above all at the present time then is a ministry which handles the word of God with respect and which impresses on the congregation not just the fact that God's word is true and powerful, but why it is so and what the significance of this is. The only way that one can consistently do this, I believe, is through systematic expository preaching, amen and amen, which impresses upon the congregations the fact that the Bible ultimately tells one story, that is of humanity's fall and redemption and contains one history, that of God's dealings with men and women culminating in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The antidote then to any preaching that would provide something other than what was just described is in fact a fresh reminder of the gospel. The antidote then is the theme of this passage and I guess in a sentence Paul is reminding us simply that justification is by faith alone for Jews and for Gentiles. If you're to boil it down to just one key idea, it is that salvation is by faith alone for both Jews and Gentiles. Now, I would concede that it's tempting at first reading to make this more about Israel than anything else. Now, in fairness, on the one hand, it is very much about Israel. In fact, my Bible, as yours might have as well, has these uninspired section headings. You do know that, right? These are not written in by Paul. Paul didn't write the chapter divisions. He didn't write the verses. Paul certainly didn't write down in his version of the original autograph after quoting from the Old Testament a little marginal notation that says Israel's unbelief. That that is what editors put in later. So you are allowed without any fear to simply strike those out of your Bible. So the editors, in order to attempt to be helpful perhaps in the reading of this 
epistle put there that this is about Israel's unbelief. So I understand that someone would say that's the main idea. However, I also would like to draw to your attention the fact that in my translation, and I assume yours as well, the editors also divide these units, not by the chapter, but by the idea. And the unit extends from 930 down to 104. And the big idea then is captured in that whole section of thought. Now, why is that important? Because as you can see, it is really not, when you look at it that way, in the context, so much about Israel's unbelief as about everybody's unbelief. And the fact that everybody gets saved the same way, and that is through faith, and that everybody is tempted with the same false religion, and that is religion, a religion of law, a religion of works. Even if passionately pursued is a course run in the opposite direction of the gospel. And so the subject may be Israel and the issue might be national unbelief, but the purpose of the section then is to exhort Gentiles, addressing them as brothers in Christ, focusing on the fact that they are saved by faith and reminding the reader that Christ is the fulfillment of the law for all believers, both Jews and Gentiles. And so, for this morning, I would argue that Israel's unbelief is definitely present here, but primarily to serve as a surface to bounce off of so that Paul can talk about justification by faith alone because he's preaching the same old true gospel all through the book. The Christ-centered gospel of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sin and the regeneration of the spiritually dead. That's what he's trying to proclaim to us today. That's what he wants you to come away from this experience in the word, knowing and understanding and believing. It is not an academic essay on the eschatology of any kind of people. It's an appeal to individuals. He wants you to hear it again, that old, old story of what it means to be saved. And so he gets down to the end of Romans 9, beginning in verse 30, down to chapter 10, verse 4, and he rests his case. Now, I know we've been away from the book for several weeks, so I would just remind you, kind of reach back in your memory to what we studied several weeks ago, months ago, through the book of Romans in chapter 9. Remember, Paul is making an argument. He's making a case. He's appealing before the court, as it were. And it's very logical and it's very methodical. And he structures it very carefully as he goes through. And this is the culmination. This is the closing argument. Uh, This is the time in the TV show where all the commercials are over and we're getting to the very end of the show and the lawyer stands up to give his final appeal to the jury before he rests his case. That's what Paul's doing here. Uh, This is the high point in the drama. And simply put... He wants to defend his position that justification comes by faith and not by law or by works or by effort. If you're taking notes this morning, I just gave you the outline. Not by law, not by works, and not by effort. Justification comes by faith and not by law. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That is not a rhetorical question. Most of the time when preachers ask questions of the audience, it is rhetorical. You are not intended to answer. That's why you were so confused last week. When Mark asked a question and he actually wanted an answer. 
and, and, and an answer was given by me, and it was wrong. I think it was, I think it's something it's right. I would challenge him on. I think I, I think I was right. And I would like to defend that sometime. But then one of you gave a right answer. It wasn't rhetorical. He actually wanted you to respond. Same thing here. Paul is not asking just some rhetorical question. He is saying, think about it. What do we say then? If everything I've said in Romans 9 is true, you ought to be asking yourself, what then do we do about these Gentiles? How is it possible then that anybody can be reconciled to God by nothing but faith? What shall we say then? And it implies that there's a conclusion and that the reader would have arrived at it. I mean, imagine that you're a Roman citizen. Just for a moment, imagine we are in Rome. We are gathered together. We are sitting in the congregation. It's the assembled church. And you're hearing this letter read to you. I mean, what are you thinking right now? What you are thinking here is that you are as amazed as the Jews are that the offer of salvation is being extended to you. Could it be true? I mean, is it possible to simply take God at his word and be saved? Are you trying to tell me that I don't have to do anything? Are you telling me that I have to do more work and more effort and follow more rules and fill up more forms to get my license renewed at the DMV than to get my soul saved to spend eternal glory with God forever. Are you, re- are you really saying that? That's a fair question. I would be asking that. I, I would be asking that question, and there would, be, there would be like an aroma of doubt. Because if what he said is true leading up to Romans 9.30, then I'm saying there is, there is way too much at stake. I am way too wicked and way too damnable for that to be enough for me to be ushered into the presence of God's glory forever, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And yet, beloved, that's exactly what he's saying. He is asking the question for you. He's drawing it out of you. He's reaching in and he's pulling it out. He is saying, go ahead, ask it, ask it. I want you to ask it. It's like, he's saying, make my day, right? Just ask so that I have the opportunity to respond with this magnificent gospel. Is it possible? To just take God at his word and be saved. Isn't that too easy? What about you today? What are you thinking about this? Are you struggling with the fact that your salvation was not dependent upon anything you did and it is secured not by something you continue to do? What shall we say then? He gives an answer. Now, I've heard this scripture read before by people who evidently are not aware of the content of it or the argument because it's like they believe that this next section is also a question. It's a, it's a continuation of the question. This is not a continuation of the question. This is the answer to the question. So beginning with the word that Gentiles, that's the answer. Make that note, whatever it takes, so you remember that the next time you're reading Romans 9. He, what do we say then? Here's the answer. The answer to the question, what do we say then, is that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But, shockingly, 
that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. That's it. Case closed. That's the conclusion. What do we say then? We say that even those who did not have the benefit of a religious culture, a religious upbringing, they didn't have all the benefits that Paul listed that the Jews did, they didn't have the prophets, they didn't have the law, they didn't have the writings, they didn't have centuries of warning about the coming of Messiah, they didn't have any of the rituals that pointed to him, they didn't offer sacrifices, they didn't have a tabernacle or a temple, they didn't have the presence of God leading them as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, they didn't have any of that. All they had was faith and that's all they needed and that's Paul's point. Can you say amen to that? That's worth affirming, isn't it? Because you know what? You and I didn't have it either growing up. Not the way they did. Remember, we're Gentiles. I assume most of you. We're the same group of people in the same hopeless state with the same lack of understanding. And yet with just that simple faith can receive the righteousness of Christ. So in the end, faith triumphs over the law. That's why I said it's justification that comes by faith and not by law. Any law, that's Mosaic law or your law. Whatever law you're creating, it's justification that comes by faith and not by that law. Having the law is not enough. Having faith in the law is not enough. Having faith in God who gives the law and fulfills the law is what saves Having the law is not enough. Having faith in the law is not enough. Having faith in Christ, who gave and fulfills the law, is how you are saved. So the first point, justification comes by faith and not by law. Secondly, justification comes by faith and not by works. Now, it is reasonable to ask in response to what we just read about the fact that Israel, who had the law and pursued the law, yet somehow ended up not attaining what they were pursuing, why? I love the fact that Paul lets you ask why. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you grew up in a household where you were not allowed to question your parents? How many of you, thank you for the hands anyway. How many of you you better not put your hand up, are in a church or were in a church where you are not allowed to ask questions why of the pastor. You are not in a church like that. Maybe you were in a church like that. I love the fact that Paul not only allows you to ask why, not only encourages you to ask why, but asks why for you. He says, let me help you out. I'm going to ask why. This is an inspired why. It's an inspired why because if you listen to what he just said, you would ask yourself, what's the purpose then of even having the law? If it really wasn't a way to get saved, doesn't that seem like a really evil bait and switch? Why? You see, why didn't the Jews succeed in obtaining justification through the law? I thought that's what they were told. Now he answers it. Notice what he says, because... They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. 
the reason why their pursuit of the law was not successful in obtaining justification was because they actually pursued it as something that required works, not something based on faith. You see, they missed time and again when the scriptures were clear that what God really wants is your heart, not your sacrifice of an animal. They didn't hear King David when he said that I could multiply sacrifices to you over and over again to an infinite degree and it's not going to matter if you don't have my heart. A broken and a contrite heart is what God wants. They missed all the illustrations throughout the Old Testament lives of the patriarchs and the other saints when God said it's not about the legalistic obedience to the structure, it's about the spirit of the law and the heart and the hope you put in me. It was based on works. Now this is as good a place as any, I guess, to talk about works, shall we? I mean, you might as well. You're probably wondering because believers are, and I want to make this really clear for a moment, listen to me carefully, believers are expected to and instructed to do good works. You're not allowed to leave now and go, ah, great, pastor said, works don't matter. I'm going to go live like the devil. You shouldn't want to do that anyway. You're slave to righteousness. But I want you to know why you shouldn't do that. Because works are mentioned in the Bible. Works are clearly listed out. Works, in fact, are the practical purpose of your election. Ephesians 2, verse 10 You were foreordained before the foundation of the world not only to be saved, but to do these good works. Not only that, but faith without works is dead, James 2.26. So you can't even claim to be a believer and claim to have faith if you don't have these works. So how do we handle that? Here's the answer. Those are works that happen after being justified and being made righteous in the eyes of God. Those works are real, and they are mentioned, they are expected, they are intended, they are the outcome, but they come as a result of being justified, not as a condition of being justified. They come as the result of being justified, not the condition of being justified. If they were the result of being justified, then they are going to be present for us, always and forever, based on a work that was done by somebody else and given to us. If, however, they are the basis for your justification, then number one, they're never going to be enough. And number two, you are never going to be confident that you are justified because you are always going to be doing probably more bad works than good works. So the works that are mentioned here are expected, but they come as a result of justification. You see, the Jews got it backward. Uh, They tried to earn justification through doing good works instead of doing good works after they were justified. They wanted credit for their own justification. They couldn't accept God's plan to send somebody and do it for them. That was really offensive. And, and, And beloved, I might add, it's probably offensive to some of you. Some of you think that it's really offensive that that you're suggesting that my justification has nothing to do with my contribution that I did nothing that I do nothing I contribute nothing that nothing I ever did is going to amount to any benefit for me in the last day and that Christ and Christ alone and his righteousness is the only thing that matters why because it wars against that part of your soul that wants to take some kind of credit for your ultimate salvation 
You want to pay down some of the debt. You have this debtor's ethic in your mind that says, it's not enough that he would do this for me and I receive it by faith. I must have to do something. Have you ever um, invited people over to your home for a meal? And the first thing they say is, what can I do? Now this is good, it's appropriate. It's often helpful to the host or the hostess. What can I do? Now, now the host or the hostess might say, nothing. Just relax, sit down, enjoy some conversation. Dinner will be ready in 10 minutes. At which point you can graciously accept that invitation. You can go and sit down and you can fellowship and you can wait to be called to dinner. Or you can persist relentlessly in doing something. And if you're like me, with absolutely no skill, but good intentions, then you are going to be assigned a job, but the job will have no functional purpose and it will provide no actual benefit. In fact, your wife will make up a job for you to do that doesn't even need to be done because that's how you satisfy your pride in contributing something. Let's be honest about it. It's not for them, it's for you. And in much the same way, somebody can approach the doctrine of salvation and say, well, what do I do? How can I help? Oh, yes, thank you. I appreciate the fact that it was done for me through the righteousness of Christ at a cost and a sacrifice beyond anything my puny mind will ever be able to comprehend. But what can I do? How can I help? What part can I play? Answer nothing. There is nothing that we do. And this is Paul's argument. There was an entire people group that was trying to contribute and trying to earn because they were offended that they weren't allowed to do something. And and ironically, the very effort to do something to contribute to their own salvation caused them to stumble over the one who had done it for them already. This is what the rest of the verse is saying. They, notice it, they, the Jews, they, the ones who are trying to earn their way to justification, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And this was foretold, was not a surprise. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a quote from Isaiah 28.16 and Isaiah 8.14. It's picked up again later in the New Testament by Peter, who was a Jew and an apostle to the Jew. Remember, Paul, a Jew, an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, a Jew, the apostle to the Jews. The book of Acts broken down into two big parts, the ministry of Peter to the Jews, the ministry of Paul to the Gentiles. Both of those men saying the same thing, quoting the same verses, singing from the same hymn book, 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7 and 8. For it stands in scripture, Peter says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Yes, you heard it correctly. God predestined that the Jews would harden their hearts to the gospel. Why? 
so that Gentiles would get a chance to join the kingdom. That's going to be the entire point from Romans 11, 11 onward. We are going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking that. It's going to be wonderful. But just let me tell you the punchline now. It was ordained by God that the Gentiles might have an opportunity then also to be included in as those covenant people. And there are warnings, lest we become arrogant and proud about it. Much more to say about that in the next several weeks. Justification then comes by faith and not by law. It comes by faith and not by works. And number three, justification is by faith and not by effort. Look down at chapter 10, verse 1, an artificial break in the the layout of your Bible, not part of the original manuscript. The argument and the purpose flows on without interruption. Our chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. So, this is his prayer. Number one, this is his prayer. Paul's addressing the brothers. Who are the brothers? The brothers are the Gentile believers that make up the church in Rome. He's addressing us. He's talking to the Gentiles about the Jews. And he's talking to Christians about those who have yet to believe. He says here that his heart's desire and prayer to God. I love that. His heart's desire... It's the same word that is translated good pleasure in Ephesians 1.5 and 1.9. Don't go there right now, look at it later. But in Ephesians 1.5 and 9, the beautiful section talking about our unconditional election, all of that was done at God's good pleasure, God's heart's desire. God's heart's desire is to save people who are not worthy of salvation based on the worthiness of the sacrifice of his perfect son. Ephesians 1, 5, 1, 9, good pleasure, heart's desire, same concept. Paul's purpose and prayers are aligned with God. Side note, a word on prayer. When you pray, pray according to God's will. When you pray, go with the flow. Go with the flow of God's will. Go with the flow of God's purposes. Go with the flow of God's plan. Go with the flow of God's revelation. It's a lot easier to go with the flow than it is to fight and to go the opposite direction. Stay in the current of God's will when you pray. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Good, because that's his desire as well. And he has promised he will do it. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is his point. His prayer, verse 1, his point in verse 2, God doesn't offer partial credit for good effort. God does not treat us the way that contemporary sports treat children. There is no trophy for participation. Thankfully, I grew up in the very tail end of civilization where there were winners and losers, and that where being a loser made you mad. You did better the next week because you didn't want to be a loser, because you were a loser, and your coach called you a loser, and your team was a losing team, and you felt shame, and they heaped shame upon you. They taught coaches to heap shame upon you because you deserved it. You're a loser. You had first string, second string, third string. You had people who rode the bench the whole season. They were just happy to get a uniform. They never played. 
Why? Because back then we were normal. Paul doesn't give partial credit, and neither does God. It doesn't matter. There's no most improved player. There's no best effort player. Either you do it right or you don't. And what he's saying here is that those who tried to do it really, really hard with a lot of zeal were going entirely the wrong direction. In fact, if God were to offer any kind of credit for effort, the Jews would definitely be ahead of us for their zeal. In fact, the word here means passion or jealousy. And Paul says, I'm a first-hand witness to this. Paul is not going to break the ninth commandment. He's not going to say something about somebody that is not true. He says, I can speak from experience. They are zealous. I was one of them. I can testify as one of them in court. If this was a trial that had to do with the zealousness with which you were religious, these people would be innocent. Unfortunately, the trial is not about whether or not you're trying hard. The trial is whether or not you're putting your faith in the right person. And people who try really hard put their faith in themselves. People who put their faith in Christ don't have to try very hard because he did it all for you. So he testifies in court that they have zeal. In fact, he made his own defense on that point in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, where he talks about himself, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and interestingly enough, at the end of that little section, in verse 6, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous, I would kill Christians who were telling you to put your faith alone in Christ. More than that, as to righteousness in terms of a justification under the law, I was blameless. I had attained to it. I had done everything that these Jews were striving to do, and it got me nowhere. Zeal wasn't the problem. Effort wasn't the problem. Knowledge was the problem. Notice what he says. They have zeal, but they don't have knowledge. They were trying very hard, but they were making every effort to justify themselves. Imagine if we were camping in the winter, and we were watching the sun go down and anticipating the approaching blackness and death of night. And somebody comes along and they say, I'm going to build a fire. And I'm going to build a fire and you're going to be invited to join me around the fire. And they arrive and they do just that because they're outdoorsy people and they know how to do such things, offering an opportunity for people like me to live and survive. And so they come and they say, here's the process by which the fire is going to be built. And once the fire is built, I'm going to invite you to join me. And upon nothing more than that invitation, I in faith believing that that fire will warm me, accept the invitation, I come around and I enjoy the fellowship and the warmth and the light of that fire. But off in the distance, there are some of our members who are trying to make their own fire. And they think they understand the process by which fire is made, and they're absolutely intent on doing it themselves because they don't need anyone else's help. And they are out there working feverishly. The problem is, there's no hope of them ever building a fire. 
And we can turn the phones off now, too. It would be great. Um, there's no hope for them. I'll wait. Back to my vivid illustration. Remember, we were over here warming up. They're over there desperately trying to build a fire and while doing so, freeze to death, along with everybody that they ordered to stay right there with them because they had the answer. Don't you dare go over and join those people. Paul is saying, beloved, this is what I'm witnessing among my own people. They are dying for lack of knowledge of the fact that Christ came to do everything that they've been trying to do with their own effort. Effort's not enough. Verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's the, the answer to it all. Here's the problem. They were not ignorant of the law, but they were ignorant of the true righteousness that the law was pointing to. When he says you don't have knowledge, he doesn't mean that you don't know anything. I mean, they knew a lot of things. They, they were very wise. They had rabbis. They had teachers. They had schools. They had people that knew the word of God inside and out. Jesus loved to pick on those guys when he would get into intense arguments with them, with the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees. He would say, don't you understand your own scriptures? The only people Jesus was ever sarcastic to were the people who had their own form of self-righteousness and knowledge and religion. Everybody else received nothing but compassion and grace from him. So they had a lot of knowledge, but notice it, they got it wrong. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. So they started to make their own instead of submitting to God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? What is God's righteousness? The whole point that the law was pointing to was that one day one would come who would fulfill it perfectly. You see, they were fixated on the sign, but not the one that the sign was pointing to. They got it all wrong. They knew the signs really, really well, and yet they missed the very one who came and fulfilled all the signs. Now we're coming up on Christmas, which means we're going to have a lot of traditions. There's going to be Christmas trees, there's going to be Christmas carols, there's going to be Christmas goodies and cakes. But in the Rourke household, there will be another tradition. We are going to gather together at some point during the Christmas season, and we are going to sit on the sofa together, and we are going to watch that most classic Christmas film. You all know what it is, don't you? This is how you divide a church. We're going to watch the, the, the finest Christmas film ever made. Do you feel the anticipation building? <laughs> Mr. Bean's Christmas. Then don't come over if I invite you. In, in this epic piece of filmography, you, you have a scene which I think captures this idea. So Mr. Bean is with his girlfriend 
and they're going by a jewelry shop. And the girlfriend looks into the window and there is a picture of these two young people in love and he is opening up a little box and there's a ring inside. And she looks at Mr. Bean and then she looks at this and she sort of winks and nudges and gives him an elbow like, do you get it? It's time for us to get engaged. And you see this twinkle in his eye and he gets it. And so we fast forward to the moment in the movie where the two, and I don't want to spoil this for you, but I know you've all watched it because it's such a central part of the season. He arrives at dinner with a gift and, and she is bursting with anticipation. She knows what's coming. And, and so he's so proud of it and, and he gives her the beautifully wrapped gift and, and she looks at it. It's a, a little odd shape, but that's okay. And she opens it up and inside, with him beaming, is the picture that was in the window. The picture of the two people getting engaged. And, and to her horror, she realizes just how stupid Mr. Bean is. But then there's more. The redemption comes because he kind of looks at her, reaches into his pocket and pulls out a little box and she opens it up and inside there's a little hook to hang the picture on. <laughs> Beloved, when the Jews read the law, they got the picture but they missed the treasure. They got the picture but they missed the engagement. They got the picture but they missed the fact that they're the bride. He says, you're so passionate but you're ignorant you don't understand that all of this was pointing to somebody who would come and they would, he would fulfill that righteousness perfectly for you. And you killed him by the foreordained plan of God to put him to death at the hands of wicked men so that he could raise him from the dead and offer salvation to all who put their faith in him. The Jews bought into the law but not one that they would have the power to fulfill. They were never intended to fulfill it perfectly. They kept trying, twisting it eventually into something unrecognizable. It became this monstrosity of legalism that was imposed on the people and hid from the view of everyone who came to rescue them from it. When all they had to do was just submit to God's righteousness, which is Christ. I don't want you to miss that. Please let your eye focus on it. Submit to the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is something that happens to you. You submit to it. You don't earn it. You don't buy it. You don't work your way up to it. It comes to you. It wraps around you. It clothes you once and for all. And it's the only clothing upon which you will be judged. It is the wedding garment that gets you into the feast, according to the parable. It, it is the righteousness that the Father judges you by. It is not, as I've said before, because it drives me nuts when I hear this, it is not as if you have never sinned. He doesn't treat you as if you've never sinned. No, he treats you like you have sinned and that you are deserving of hell forever, but that he sent his son as the penal substitutionary atonement for that sin, your sin imputed to him, his righteousness given to you. That's how he treats you, as one clothed in the robe of his own son. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust a sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. Verse 4 is the promise. 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end, meaning the completion, the perfection. It doesn't mean that it ends like it just stops, but it means it, it is fulfilled, completed, the telos. Christ is the end of it. He came to fulfill it, to complete it. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I came to be it for you. He's the end of the law, fully accomplished in him, and it is a law for righteousness, or the word justification is good here, justification before a holy God to everyone. I love that, everyone. Remember I said at the very beginning of this study, Romans 9.1, this is not a study where I'm going to take out the sovereignty of God and use it like a hammer to beat people. Instead, it is a chapter about Paul's heartbroken evangelistic effort to see everybody come to a knowledge of the truth because anyone who puts their faith in Christ will be saved. For everyone, regardless of ethnicity or class or background or anything, anyone who believes. That's it. It's not about works. It's not about anything that you did. It's about those who believe. That's the basis of our conversion is belief. And that belief even comes as a result of the Holy Spirit giving us new life, regeneration, so that we can believe. So this was his argument. They need to be saved in order that they would recognize him as Messiah, receive his righteousness, and rest in his finished work. Let me ask you this morning, how you're doing with this doctrine. Do you need to be saved? Have you been trying up until now to earn your way into the glory of God? Have you been trying to do something that would make, your, make you worthy of his forgiveness? Asked another way, are you somebody who thinks you are saved but you are crippled with this doubt burdened with shame and completely overcome by a sense of hopelessness that you're never going to live up. If that's the case, whether you've never believed or whether you believe incorrectly, may I call you today to repentance and faith in the fact that Christ has done the work for you and he offers it to you freely through belief and faith in him. Do you recognize him as Messiah, as the one who came to fulfill the whole law, Will you receive his righteousness, not as a reward for hard work, but as the free gift that he says it is? Will you yield to it, submit to it, let it cover you, and will you rest once and for all? Will you stop trying to pay him back, and will you just rest in the once and for all security that comes from your faith being in him? May we be a body known as one who is at rest, at rest in the peace that comes from the knowledge 
that we have put our hope in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare to sing songs in response to this magnificent truth, may you remind us that as the body assembled, we encourage one another and we build one another up with these songs. Help us to sing, to sing loudly, to sing for the benefit of each other, to express from the deepest part of our souls the reality that we comprehend your mercy is more. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, you choose not to count their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. It is the power of the cross that we cling to. It is the power of the cross at work in our lives. It is the power of the cross that is the very animating truth of the gospel that makes it so attractive. May we not cloud it, cover it up, or obscure it by some horrendous, twisted version of works-based righteousness, but instead let it speak for itself with all clarity and beauty calling out to a world of lost sinners, inviting them home into your presence, into your rest, into the warmth and the light of your fellowship, to sit around your table and to celebrate your victory. Make us winsome in our proclamation of that glorious truth and make us bold in our commitment to believe it even when the devil and all hell is raging against our minds and reminding us of our unworthiness, remind us that we have an advocate, a mediator who ascended and now sits at the right hand of his Father on high and lives to make intercession for us. For it is in his mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.